The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In 1989, Collier Landry was 11 years old, living with his parents in Mansfield, Ohio. His father was a highly respected physician, his mother Noreen, a full-time caregiver, raising and doting on her son and his adopted sister Elizabeth. From the outside looking in, the Landrys seemed like the perfect family, but everything wasn't as it seemed. Over the course of a year, Collier's eyes would be opened to the reality his father wasn't the respectable man he presented himself to be, and that his mother was preparing for a divorce. But before the ball could drop on New Year's Eve, Noreen vanished without a trace. Join me now as we take a look at the shocking disappearance of Noreen Boyle, the wife of a prominent physician and mother of two. You'll hear the story of a young boy who helped detectives put the pieces of the mystery together and how he bravely testified on the witness stand to put a killer behind bars. My name is Collier Landry, and I'm 44 years old. I've lived in California for almost 20 years, pursuing a career as a filmmaker and working as a cinematographer, and most recently, a true crime podcast I host called Moving Past Murder. For Collier, the decision to start a true crime podcast was a lot different from many of the reasons most people decide to start a podcast, especially one about murder. It wasn't born out of a fascination for the criminal mind or just as something to do as a hobby. For Collier, his decision to start a podcast about murder was born out of tragedy and it all started when he was just a kid. I grew up for the first part of my life in Virginia. My father was a doctor on a naval base in Dahlgren, Virginia. My father got an offer from a hospital in Mansfield, Ohio to come and run it. And it was gonna enter private practice. I was like five years old when we moved there to Mansfield, Ohio. In the heart of North Central Ohio sits the city of Mansfield. And like many other Rust Belt cities throughout the region, it represents the nexus between manufacturing and agriculture, between industry and heartland. And in 1983, the 50,000 residents were excited to welcome a new doctor, and not just any doctor, an impressive one, a naval officer and an Ivy League graduate. The Mansfield News Journal proudly announced in its pages that Lieutenant Commander John F. Boyle Jr. of the U.S. Navy would be trading in his military affiliation for a civilian medical practice in Mansfield. The article boasted of the 40-year-old doctor's credentials, numerous commendations and awards from his time in the Navy. It also mentioned he'd be accompanied by his wife, Noreen, and his five-year-old son, Collier, who'd all be moving into a beautiful home on Hawthorne Lane. 
Although the move to Mansfield was a transition for the East Coast family, they managed to slip into it with relative ease. Dr. John Boyle, whom most people referred to as Jack, and his wife Noreen, had both come from blue-collar upbringings, not unlike the majority of the population in their new city. The couple met in their teens, dating for about five years before getting married in 1968. After both attending the University of Pennsylvania, Noreen helped put Jack through medical school working as a dental hygienist, a fairly egalitarian arrangement by 70s standards, that is. In 1978, the year after Jack finished medical school, the couple welcomed Collier, their only biological child. Five years later, the little family were off to Ohio, so Jack could start his own practice. With the new opportunity came the promise of money and a chance to join the ranks of Midwestern high society. I went to a private school. Most of the kids that were in my school had parents that were either doctors or lawyers or they were affluent people. For the first time in my life, I had friends that had mothers and fathers, but not mothers and fathers together. They were from broken families. I got to know kids that literally were raised by one parent and would go on the weekends and it was something I never really had a concept of. As Collier adjusted to his new life, his father's medical practice thrived, soon becoming the largest in the area, with approximately one out of every 13 residents of Richland County, Ohio, relying on Jack for their medical needs. But the success of the practice meant Jack spent less time at home. You know, and it was always, you know, daddy's really busy. Your father's gone to the hospital. His pager would go off. Oh, I've got to go. I've got to go take care of a patient. More than simply being a good physician, Jack was respected and beloved by his patients. Part of the allure were his tales of being a Vietnam veteran, a flight surgeon for the Navy's acrobatic flying team, the Blue Angels. He told his patients he'd logged more flight time in an F-14 than any other pilot and that he'd even been shot by a sniper during the Iran hostage crisis in 1979. With Jack now spending more and more time with his patients, Collier was now spending more time with his mom, bringing them even closer together. My whole life growing up, my mother was the person I spent all my time with. I was like her little rock, I was her little sidekick, and I learned everything I learned from my mother. From a younger age, my father was involved, but we didn't have those like real family moments. I mean, there was initially when I was younger, but those moments of sitting down at the table together, having dinner, having breakfast on a Sunday morning or something, those were few and far between. And my parents, as I knew them, were together, but I didn't really understand what their relationship dynamic was. And all of that really changed around 1989. At the beginning of 1989, Collier was just 10 years old. And though he was incredibly bright and articulate, he still exuded a childlike innocence appropriate for his age. Christmas had come and gone, with him still believing in Santa, and still largely viewing the world through the lens Noreen had carefully curated for him. But the time was still coming when Collier, like all children, would begin to realize that the world was perhaps a bit different than he'd been led to believe. And it started by chance, when an asthma attack forced Collier and his father to spend some quality time together for practically the first time in his life. 
my mother wanted to adopt a, a little girl and she wanted to adopt this little girl from Taiwan. So my mother and I were going to go on this trip to Taiwan to meet my sister that we were going to adopt. And it was going to be a big experience for me. And a couple of days before we're supposed to leave to go to Taiwan in February, my mother and I, I get a really bad asthma attack. And my asthma is really, really bad. I have like bronchitis and all this stuff. And I really want to go on this trip. And um, my parents are like, you're not, you can't. And I also didn't really want to stay home with my father for two weeks. And that was the first real time that I was alone with my father, period. The first time being alone with him, which I was never really comfortable with. And my father just, just tormented me. Jack had always had a violent temper that could flare up without warning, but this was the first time Collier experienced it without the protection of his mother. So now I'm trapped with him in a house and I'm sick and my mother is on the other side of the planet. And this is when I really got to see how ugly he was. And he was chasing me around the house and he started throwing things at me and he was hitting me and screaming at me and making me say, he would make me repeat back to him, what are you, a stupid little fat boy? What are you? I can't hear you. He was screaming at me. And then an hour later, be sitting on the couch and be like, I'm sorry. And then he, he would be really nice and sweet. It was like this Jekyll and Hyde. And it happened for like two straight weeks. And I had never seen this from my father. Spending time with this man alone really gave me an assessment of who my father was more than ever before. After two weeks, Noreen came back from Taiwan with arrangements to adopt a three-year-old girl they planned on naming Elizabeth. Noreen's instincts told her something must have happened between Collier and Jack while she was away, but Jack warned Collier not to say a word to her about anything, and out of fear, Collier agreed to keep his father's secret. But in just a few months, there would be even more secrets, but secrets of a different variety. And eventually, Collier wouldn't be able to stay silent anymore. It was Memorial Day weekend of 1989, and my father, he was said, oh, I'm going to go see a patient in the country. I, you come with me or whatever. So he takes me to this uh, Memorial Day party at this house, at this patient's house. And I actually had a really good time. Everybody was out there drinking beer. And it was like, it was people that I didn't normally associate with, you know, racing dirt bikes and quads and drinking beer and skipping stones on the lake. And there's a young woman there and she's very friendly with my father. Towards the end, before my father and I are leaving, my father is walking around the lake and I was walking with this little girl who was like right around my age, so 11, 12. And behind me, you know, 50 paces or whatever is my father with this young woman. He has his arm around her. And right before we left, he kissed her, but he kissed her on the side of the cheek, you know, like a little friendly kiss, right? And I asked my dad, I said, who is that woman? And he goes, oh, that's one of daddy's patients. And, you know, she's, she's really sick. And I was just comforting her, you know. And I was like, okay. And I literally didn't pay any mind to it. Because I didn't understand that my father was a liar at this point. I knew my father was a little bit of an a-hole. But I didn't know that he was a liar, right? So, thought nothing of it. Had a fun, came home, told my mom, I rode quads and dirt bikes and I <laughs> She probably was having a heart attack, but uh, she was also like, oh, I'm glad you had fun. I'm glad you had an experience. You played with other kids. And, you know, she, she loved all that. The young woman Jack introduced to Collier as his patient was an attractive 26-year-old named Sherry Campbell. 
And just in case you weren't reading between the lines, Sherry wasn't actually Jack's patient. She was his mistress. And there was another bombshell no one knew about at the time that would soon be dropped. Sherry was carrying Jack's child. Everything Collier had witnessed had flown way over his head until just a few weeks later when something happened that would force him to start putting some of the pieces together. Flash forward to Father's Day, 1989. My father says, hey, I'm going to go go to the suntan place, but we're going to stop at my office first and grab some stuff. Do you want to come, you know, come with me or whatever? So I'm like, okay. And we pull up at the suntan place is the woman who I saw him with his arm around, around the lake. And I learned that her name was Sherry. And it was just a big surprise. And she had two remote control cars. And it was like a, you know, happy Father's Day surprise. And of course I was excited, but I was also like, who is this woman? And why is she here again? This is odd. And my father seemed to be very into her. This time it was impossible for Collier's suspicions not to be aroused. And with his curiosity piqued, he noticed something peculiar. I noticed a ring on Sherry's finger, and it was a very unique ring because my mother had that ring. And it was a diamond slide ring, so it was a ring that had a, that had a little shaft in it that the diamond would slide back and forth. My mother would talk about this ring. She had gotten it years earlier, and but I hadn't seen it in a while. I look at the ring, and I say, oh, that's a really nice ring. And she just kind of looks at me and kind of giggles like, eh. So... My father doesn't go in for a suntan. They're talking and I'm sitting in the car. And then my father goes to kiss her. But it's not the little peck on the cheek that it was, you know, a few weeks previously. It was a tongue kiss. He makes out with her right in front of me. And I had never seen that before. To be honest with you, I'd never seen my parents kiss like that. I, I'm just, I'm sort of stunned. My father gets in the car and he says, Call you, I need you to do daddy a favor. And I need you to tell mommy that I took you to the office and I gave you these remote control cars for getting good grades. And this was my present to you on Father's Day. And he's like, can I count on you to do that for me, buddy? And like, what do you say to your father? Like, no. I'm thinking to myself, what if I just stepped in? Remember when Noreen flew to Taiwan and Jack warned Collier not to tell his mother about their tumultuous two weeks together? Well, this time was different, because this time, he wasn't just asking Collier to emit information. This time, he was point-blank asking his 11-year-old son to outright lie to his mother's face. And that night, when the family went out to eat for Father's Day, Collier dutifully repeated Jack's lie to Noreen. I had never in my life lied to my mother before. And I can't believe that I did it. And I can't believe that I did it with such ease. I can't believe that I did it because I was trying to appease my father. It wasn't right. I wasn't raised like that. You don't do that. So the next day, I'm just so overwhelmed with guilt and so concerned about what I had just seen the day before. I come in and I say, Mommy, I need you to sit down. I say, I have something to tell you. You know, I said, Daddy asked me to lie to you. You know, I, I didn't get the remote control cars from daddy. I, we got them from this woman named Sherry. 
she had your what I think was your ring on, and I saw Daddy kiss her in a in a non-friendly way, <laughs> and in a what I thought was romantic. And I said, I think Daddy has a girlfriend. My mother says to me, "Look, you know, I don't appreciate you lying to me, but I appreciate you telling me the truth now." And she got on the phone, and um, her voice was raised. My mother always had a very colorful、uh, selection of words that she would use. But she used all of them, and I feel this overwhelming sense of guilt, despite knowing that I didn't do anything wrong. This overwhelming sense of guilt that I have somehow completely screwed up my entire family by exposing this to my mother and exposing my father, and I have done something so wrong and so heinous, and I don't know what's going to happen. And now I'm just like all my other friends who come from these fractured families. What ensues from that moment forward is my mother files for divorce from my father, and unbeknownst to me, my mother knew about Sherry. My mother knew about the ring, and my mother had also known that Sherry was pregnant. What was impossible for Collier to understand at the time, and something he'd only become aware of later, was that Jack and Noreen. Had a rather unique arrangement hidden beneath their veneer of a happily married couple—an arrangement they deliberately shielded from Collier and kept hidden from their community. Jack was a serial womanizer and perpetually kept a string of mistresses on hand, going back before they'd even been married. But there was a line in the sand Noreen insisted was not to be crossed—a Rubicon. And he just crossed it. My mother had known about my father's consistent affairs with all of these women over the years, but the deal that they had was: you can do whatever the heck you want, Jack. Don't involve Collier. And the moment that he introduced me to Sherry Campbell, and did that, and kissed her in the ring and everything, that was it. She's like, I'm divorcing you. Because she was willing to go along with all of it, because she just wanted her kid, she wanted her life, and she wanted to just sort of figure it out. And my mother had had a relationship or two during this, or you know, shortly thereafter, she filed for divorce. There was also another side to the deception of Doctor Jack Boyle. Noreen had fully been aware of, and even participated in. One the community of Mansfield would be shocked to learn when the truth eventually came out months later. Remember all the war stories Jack told: flying jets, getting shot by a sniper in Iran, working with the Blue Angels, serving in Vietnam. Well, none of those stories were actually true. While Jack's actual service as a Navy physician was certainly reputable, it hadn't been as glamorous as he made it out to be, and all the elaborate stories he'd been telling were simply lies he told to woo girlfriends. Mistresses and patients into believing he was something more impressive than he really was. After Noreen put her foot down and told Jack she wanted a divorce, Jack decided to play dirty and used his powerful leverage over Noreen. My father is basically saying, "I'm going to keep all the money. I'm going to take everything and your house and everything. You're going to be working at McDonald's." I remember my mother was so upset because she's like, "Because he's got all the money." He's like, I'm going to pull Collier out of private school, and then, you know, my my sister had just come over from Taiwan, and my father was saying things, and my mother was very upset because my father was saying, well, he's going to file a motion with his lawyer 
to say that she was adopted illegally, that he never signed her adoption papers and ship her back to China. You know, stuff like that. You know, my father got really, really ugly, really, really fast. During this tumultuous time, Jack also started reinventing himself, trading in his Ivy League image for a more rural flavor. He bought a farm outside of Columbus, bought a truck, started wearing blue jeans, a cowboy hat and boots. But this was more than a midlife crisis for the doctor. Jack was adopting a new persona, preparing to switch lives and start over with a new family with Sherry Campbell. My father was moving his medical practice to Erie, Pennsylvania. He had told me probably around October of that year. And he's going to start this family with, with Sherry. And he's essentially abandoned myself and my mother for this new family that he's put together. And they're going to have this wonderful life. And he's going to make sure that our lives, and he told me this too, are, are completely miserable. I mean, he told me this verbatim, you know, I'm going to destroy your life. <laughs> this is what he's telling an 11-year-old son. All the while, Sherry, who already had two children of her own, was under the impression Jack was already divorced until he finally told her the truth when she was just about five or six months pregnant. Despite the lie, Sherry still decided she was going to go through with marrying Jack, which would now have to be put on the back burner until after his divorce was finalized with Noreen. It's November 1989, and the tension every time my father comes to the house is like, you can cut it with a knife. We are literally avoiding him. So if he comes in, my mother and I go upstairs or something like we don't want to be around him. And my mother, I could see for the first time her vulnerability. You know, she was also a very strong willed woman, very intelligent and very put together. But I could see it was wearing on her because my father had gone from already being a nightmare to the, the nightmare had escalated tenfold for her. And one time we're driving and she says to me, this is like the middle of November, 1989. And she says, Collier, I want you to know I would never leave you. And I said, I know that mommy. And she says, if something happens to me, I want you to know that your father had something to do with it. Your father has mafia connections and he made me disappear. And I'm just like, what? And I'm like, mommy, that'll never happen. And she's like, I just want you to know that. Thanksgiving and Christmas of 1989 came and went under the shadow of Jack and Noreen's impending divorce, which by now had turned quite ugly. As Jack continued making preparations to leave Mansfield, Sherry was preparing to give birth to their child in just a few weeks, and Noreen was praying she'd be able to come out the other side of the divorce with both Collier and Elizabeth, as well as their home in Mansfield. In the meantime... It appeared all the stress was beginning to wear on Noreen as her health began to decline. Her best friend, Shelly Bowden, noticed Noreen had lost an excessive amount of weight during the holiday season, a time of year where most people experience the opposite. We have Christmas, and it's not a great Christmas. It's a very weird Christmas. It was the first time that my sister was there. She's three years old. You know, my mother's trying to be a mother now to two kids and in the middle of a divorce. Christmas passes, and my grandmother was supposed to come and stay with us for Christmas. Now, my, my mother was very close to my father's mother. 
And she was supposed to come for Christmas and she didn't come for Christmas. It gets to be New Year's. And then there's talking to my grandmother might come. And so on December 30th, 1989, my father, you know, he was supposed to be there hours earlier. He shows up about seven or eight o'clock at night with my grandmother, his mother. And my mother always had a saying, you know, famous last words. She would always say that. And she was on the phone with Shelly Bowden when my father pulled up. She said to Shelly Bowden, he brought his mother, so he can't kill me tonight. So my grandmother comes in and, you know, we have this like late dinner. I kiss Grammy tonight after showing her like, but I got Santa Claus or whatever. Still believe in Santa Claus at this point. So I said, good night, Grammy. And then I went over and I kissed my mom and hugged her. And I said, good night, mommy. And that is the last time I saw my mother. It was the last day of 1989, a year that had begun for the Boyle family with the promise of a newly adopted family member and happy days ahead. But everything changed so dramatically over the course of the year, and Collier's eyes were beginning to open to the reality of the chaotic world around him. He'd witnessed his mother's vulnerabilities, his father's metamorphosis into a person he hardly recognized, while learning families could be fragile, and that doing the right thing could have horrible consequences. But whatever shred of innocence 11-year-old Collier still had left in him would be forever shattered in the darkness of the small hours of New Year's Eve. At about 3 o'clock in the morning on December 31st, 1989, I was jostled awake from a very deep sleep by what I thought was a scream. And I laid in my bed and I was petrified. And then I heard a really loud thud. It sounded like a body hit a wall. And there was a span of about 60 to 90 seconds between what I heard was a second thud. And I heard my father's voice muttering. I could hear it. He was talking. I slept with my door open. And I counted 12 footsteps, walked down the hallway. Because the, the, the thuds and the scream had come from my mother's room. The footsteps stopped in the doorway and I was looking at the clock and I could see out of my peripheral vision the, the feet in my doorway. And there was like this voice that kept saying, don't look up. And it was probably about like a good 15, 20 seconds those feet were there in that doorway. And I'm just petrified. Then they go away. And I'm trying to process what's happened but I ended up falling asleep shortly thereafter. At eight the next morning, Collier woke up and ran straight to his mother's bedroom, only to find the bed unmade and empty. I go downstairs and my father is sitting on the couch with a towel wrapped around his waist. He had just taken a shower. I said to my father, I said, where is my mother? My father looks at me and he goes, well, Collier, mommy took a little vacation. And at that point, I knew. And my father says that him and my mother got in a fight and that she threw credit cards at him and her purse at him. And she was hollering and yelling at him over things. And she stormed out of the house, dead of winter in Ohio at 3 a.m. and got into a car that was at the end of the driveway. And we had a fairly long driveway. It would probably be about 50 yards in the snow. 
my mother just stormed out, no purse, no credit cards, no money, and just left her whole family. A woman that literally had never left my side other than when she went to China to go see my sister and bring her back. I knew my father was lying, and I knew he killed her. After calling a family meeting that morning, Jack gave his mother and Collier strict orders not to call police or the FBI regarding Noreen's sudden disappearance. Jack's mother trusted her son completely and never thought for a moment he might be lying. Collier felt differently. When my mother left me, when, when she went to Taiwan when I couldn't go because I was so sick, and those two weeks, that I, almost two weeks that I spent with my father, just he and I, prepared me for what was going to happen next. I already knew the, the animal that I was dealing with because I'd already been with him. So my father left, got dressed, and he left that day. I immediately ran upstairs. You know, and my grandmother's like, don't call the police on this. But my mom had just bought a cordless phone. I grabbed the cordless phone and I had hidden all of my mother's friends' numbers. I wrote them all down on a piece of paper and I hid them inside a Santa Claus Garfield that I had. I, I stuck it up inside of his hat. I grabbed those numbers. I went into the bathroom. I locked the door and I called my mother's friends. And I told them, you need to call the police. I told them what happened. I said, she laughed and this, that, and the other. And I said, um, you need to call the cops. I can't call the cops. You need to call the cops. Not long after Collier's clandestine phone calls with his mom's friends, one of them contacted police to report Noreen missing. The following day, on New Year's, two uniformed officers arrived at the Boyle residence asking questions. Collier's grandmother wasn't happy. I can't tell them anything because my grandmother's hovering right over them. And I said, you know, I, I pull like one of them aside. He like goes in the other room and I follow him and I say, I don't trust my father as far as I can throw him which is what my mother used to say, so I pulled that from her. Although under the watchful eye of his grandmother, it had been difficult for Collier to tell cops anything substantial. It had been just enough to get police to lodge a formal missing persons report. The missing persons report comes across the desk of a detective named Lieutenant David Messmore. And Lieutenant Messmore looks at this and he goes, huh, this is interesting. A doctor's wife goes missing on New Year's Eve. I'm not doing anything. Let me go out to the house and check it out. It's not too far. So Dave Messmore comes to the house. My grandmother's like not letting him in. And Dave is a very nice and charming guy and sort of disarming. He's a cop, right? And he's, and he's good at his job. So he's like, oh, I understand your concerns, Mrs. Boyle. And, you know, I understand. And, you know, I just want to talk a little bit. I want to look around. Oh, no, no. Okay. Okay. I pull the door open. I'm like, come on in. And he comes in. And my grandmother, she just busts gasket and she's following us around the house and then she just gets so angry she's like i'm calling my son he's a doctor and he's gonna be he's gonna be furious although collier's grandmother had been a formidable and feisty italian woman defying her wishes was peanuts compared to what collier was about to do next the second she left the room to call jack was a moment for collier the entire past year had seemingly been building up to. One of the things that my mother would always say to me when she was talking about like life and goals and, and, just, and just seizing opportunities, she said, Collier, you need to grab the brass ring. My mother loved carousels and carousel horses. And it's a reference because in the early like 20th century, carousels had rings that you could grab and you would grab 
the brass ring. If you grab the brass ring from the outside of the carousel, you win a prize. And that's where the expression comes from. And my mother would always tell me, you need to grab the brass ring in life, meaning you need to take advantage of every opportunity that you can get because nobody's going to hand you anything. It's recognizing that opportunity. So when the moment when my grandmother steps away to call my father and I have that alone moment with David Messmore, I recognize that that was the brass ring and look him dead in the eye. And I said, something happened to my mother. She would never leave me. My mother is not missing. My mother is dead. And he gives me his card and he leaves and he apologizes for intruding on our day and everything is very nice to my grandmother. And he, you know, and she shoes him out, right? He was there for maybe 10 minutes. With the detective's business card in hand, Collier wasted no time making good use of it. The next day, Collier was back at school. He marched straight to the principal's office and asked to call Detective Dave Messmore. You know, school is a safe haven. I'm away from him. I'm away from my grandmother. I can talk to Dave Messmore and not have to worry about the repercussions. So Dave Messmore comes down to the school and I sit down with him and I tell him the whole story from my father's history of violence, from what was going on, from Sherry, from everything I knew, the encounters, the way that my mother was, like the whole thing, what I heard, every freaking detail. And I tell him, I said, look, I'm going to go home and my grandmother will be a little flustered dealing with my younger sister. I'm going to run upstairs and I'm going to pull the bookshelves out of the wall where the crawl space is and I'm going to look for my mother's body. Not only was Collier now covertly communicating with David Messmore behind his father's back nearly every day from school, he still had to live in the same house with him. The same man he was convinced had murdered his mother and the inherent dangerousness of the situation wasn't lost on Collier. From Detective Messmore's perspective, it wasn't every day an informant living with a suspect would be so active in assisting with the investigation, but for an informant to be an 11-year-old child, well, that was simply unheard of. Throughout the first few weeks of Noreen's disappearance, Jack frequently took trips from Mansfield, driving three hours northeast, ostensibly to set up his new practice in Erie, Pennsylvania. And while Jack was out of town, Collier was looking for clues. You know, I keep saying to Dave, okay, I'm going to look for her purse, try to find this one purse that she would never leave the house with. And I find the purse and the purse is there. And I tell him, like, I found her purse. You know, my father was coming home with like nicks on his hand and scratches. And one night he has me rub Ben Gay on his shoulders because he's really sore from moving all these boxes, he said, into his new practice. And I'm like, this is so weird. Day after day, Collier would call the detective and meet him at school reporting what he discovered and asking for updates. Something inside of Dave Messmore told him to trust Collier's obvious sincerity, and soon that trust paid off. So what happens is my father is home one night when I get home from school. And he says, uh, you know, Collier, let's go to my office. And uh, we go to his office to pick up some paperwork. He takes me to a gas station and I watch him go into the gas station as soon as he goes in there and I'm watching him through the windows I start rummaging through his car and I open up the center console in his truck and I see two Polaroid photographs 
One is of a house, and the other one is of his mistress slash girlfriend and her two kids, who I know, sitting in front of a fireplace that's covered in plastic. And I think to myself, okay, that's a new looking fireplace. That is a, a house that I have never seen before in my life. Next day I go to school, call Dave Messmore, he comes down, I say, I found these pictures. I tell him what I find. The house in the Polaroid was a house Jack had recently purchased in an affluent neighborhood of Erie, Pennsylvania for $300,000. The house he planned to start his new life in without Noreen replaced as the picture demonstrated with Sherry Campbell, who just days earlier given birth to Jack's baby on January 12th. The photos of the new home caused a light bulb to go off in both Collier and David Messmore's heads. Maybe they've been searching in the wrong place for Noreen the entire time. Towards the end of January 1990, I start becoming more and more aware that my father is becoming more and more aware of me talking to the police. He says, uh, so Collier, um, I have a medical conference in Florida. I, uh, I think we should like, you know, your mother has been gone for a while. I think that we should have a, a, a just a father and son bonding trip and maybe we can talk about mommy and we can, you know, have this time together. And I think mommy would really like that. I realize at that moment when my father says that I want to take you, let's go on this trip to Florida. I'm not coming back from Florida. I get Dave Massmore again. And I say to Dave, I say, Dave, look, my father wants to take me on this medical trip, bonding trip, whatever, to Florida. I've been able to swim since I was four years old. I am going to drown in the Gulf of Mexico. I'm not coming back. He knows something. Collier was stuck between a rock and a hard place. Although he was terrified of his father, there was absolutely nothing anybody could do about it. Nobody could rescue Collier from the man he now believed intended to do him harm as well. But if police were going to do something, they needed to do it now before it was too late. January 24th, 1990, I'm woken up at six o'clock in the morning. Two strangers are in my room. They're like, we're from Children's Services. You have 20 minutes to pack a bag and we're leaving. I help my sister pack a bag. I pack a bag. I'm like, what about my dog? They're like, well, come back for your dog. As they're taking me downstairs, I hear all this commotion. My grandmother is carrying on and I see the entire crime lab from the Mansfield Police Department. All these men and women in white coats, sensors, these things. They have this machine that's on the floor scanning. I mean, it's a whole thing. Cop cars in the drive, all, all this stuff. Fiasco, like a movie. Because Dave Messmore had trusted Collier from the beginning, he'd been able to slowly start putting together his own theories about what had happened to Noreen giving him inside knowledge that helped him start looking in the right places. And what he found was overwhelming circumstantial evidence of a cold, calculated and premeditated murder. Back in early November, Jack purchased the home in Erie with Sherry Campbell by his side, pretending to be his wife, signing her name as Sherry Boyle on the purchase agreement. Instead of negotiating a lower price for the house, Jack agreed to pay the full asking price if the homeowners agreed to move out two weeks early, giving him possession on January 1st. A few weeks later, on December 4th, Jack asked the real estate agent an odd question. So strange it stuck with her. Was there anything beneath the basement floor? 
It was a question she'd never been asked before by a client. Jack's reason for the question, apparently, he was interested in lowering the floor to build a better playroom for his kids. On December 19th, a Mansfield equipment rental company received a request to reserve a jackhammer for Jack Boyle on December 29th. And on that day, Jack picked up the jackhammer along with chisels designed to break up concrete. Between the newly purchased home, the rushed-in move date coinciding with Noreen's disappearance, the odd question to the agent about the basement and the rental of a jackhammer, it was all beginning to add up. And Detective Messmore had the sickening realization he just might know where to look for Noreen. After removing Collier and his sister from the Boyles residence in Mansfield, police searched the home top to bottom, but came up empty-handed. But they weren't finished. It was now time to turn their attention to Jack's new home in Erie. On January 25th, 1989, investigators arrived at the Erie residence to find Jack had been busy in the basement over the past several weeks. The concrete floor had a fresh coat of paint, several shelving units had been assembled, and brand new green outdoor carpeting had been placed over top of the concrete. Over the next three hours, investigators carefully removed the shelves, carpeting and a layer of concrete that had been freshly poured. Although they had an inclination of what they might find, there was still hope they could be wrong. If Noreen had indeed left Jack and was trying to start over somewhere else, that could at least mean she was still alive somewhere. Instead, what investigators found was what they suspected and dreaded at the same time. Noreen, wrapped up in a green tarp with a plastic bag tied over her head. While dental records confirmed her identity, an autopsy determined her manner of death. She'd suffered blunt force trauma to the head with the immediate cause of death listed as suffocation. 200 miles away in Mansfield, Collier was struggling to breathe, although at the time, he had no idea what detectives had discovered in Pennsylvania. Collier came down with the worst asthma attack he'd ever experienced in his life, and the next morning, he was taken to the hospital. I remember them just taking me and turning me, and there's all these people in the lobby of the hospital. They take me to this little side room where Dr. Behe is. He's got the breathing machine. He's got the steroid injection. He's got all the stuff. Gives me the injection. Gives me the breathing treatment. I calm down. My lungs open up, and it's amazing. And then my principal, who was there, she says, Collier, Lieutenant Messmore found your mom. And then there was this almost eternal pause. And I had, for a very brief moment this glimmer of hope that she was about to say yeah, she was in Toronto or she was in wherever so in that moment of almost eternity as I'm hoping that what she's about ready to say is really positive she says Lieutenant Messmore found your mother and she was dead and there are no words that can really describe what a feeling like that is in one way, you are relieved that you have an answer to what you knew in your heart was true, but the truth is something that is so unimaginably horrific. 
it's almost incomprehensible. And I would like to really say that at this point in the story, that that was the apotheosis of all of this, <laughs> but it was not. I had absolutely no clue as to this shit storm that was about ready to occur in my life from that moment forward. Jack Boyle was arrested on January 25th for Noreen's murder, and charges were filed with Collier's testimony before a grand jury, securing a formal indictment against him. Collier had now lost both his parents, and heartbreakingly, the rest of his family would turn their backs on him as well. Obviously, my father's family is not happy with that because you're putting your father in prison. My mother's side of the family, as I'm sitting in this home that I was in for about a week, my mother's sister, my Aunt Carol, said to me verbatim, we cannot take you because you look like your father. So I was thrown to the wolves and thrown into the foster care system, which was not a fun experience, to say the least. With the weight of the world on his shoulders, Collier remained strong and was determined to be a voice for his mother at his father's trial, which began in June 1990, a trial that would go down as the most infamous murder trial in the history of Richland County. And for the city of Mansfield, it was like watching a soap opera, with families tuning in every night for almost a month to watch televised coverage of the trial. Around town, the trial was dividing the community with theories, vicious rumors, and dirty laundry. For every person convinced Jack was guilty, another was just as certain he was innocent. And I tell them straight up, I will testify against my father. I want to testify against my father. At this point, I have no family. I have no sense of what the world is going to look like. My entire world has been shattered. Although the prosecution's case against Jack was strong, it was still highly and almost entirely circumstantial, meaning there was every possibility Jack might walk away a free man. The prosecution knew their best chance at getting a conviction was to put 12-year-old Collier on the stand. When I'm sitting there and... I'm literally in the judge's chambers getting ready to go into the courtroom. And I look, I don't have any support system, really. But I don't have my mother. <laughs> but I remember her saying, you know, I could hear her in my head, like, grab the brass ring. Because that is the moment right there. I pushed all of my chips into the middle of the table when I betrayed my father by calling my mother's friends and telling them what happened and saying, you need to call the police. Because that was the moment that was going to define what happened. Getting ready to walk into that courtroom, I knew that that was the opportunity to grab the brass ring. This was for all the marbles, if you will. The opportunity to do what's right, the opportunity to do what's right for my mother, to get justice, and to, to say, you're not going to win. You're not going to get away with this. The two-day testimony of Jack Boyle's own son shocked not only the courtroom, but thousands upon thousands of viewers watching from home, with Collier describing Jack's violent temper, recounting the two weeks Noreen left for Taiwan, the encounters with Sherry, Noreen's diamond ring, the messy divorce. All eyes were on Collier 
as he unpacked and unloaded the heaviness he'd experienced and witnessed as an innocent child to a bitter divorce. All eyes except two, his dad's. During his entire testimony, Jack refused to even look in his son's direction. I was sitting in the computer and he was watching a movie and I didn't want him to, his movie to be interrupted, so the speaker plug was pulled out so that it wouldn't be too loud. And he came in, he says, why aren't the speakers working? And I, and I said, well, I didn't, I, I didn't even have any time to explain. He says, move out of the way. And he pushed me out of the computer chair and shoved me to the floor. And then he sat down in the chair and shoved the plug into my face and then shoved it in the back of the computer. And then next he just started ripping off all the computer games and throwing them at my head and at my shoulders and at my back and everything. Throwing them at me and I dodged most of them and they hit the door and chipped off the paint. Then he started making me call myself a stupid little fat boy, making me run around all over the house. So he would say, what are you? And, I, and I'd say a stupid little fat boy. He says, what are you? And I said, a stupid little fat boy. And he'd say even louder, he said, what are you? I said, a stupid little fat boy. Listening to Collier's testimony, it's hard not to feel in awe and heartbroken all at the same time. For a boy who was placed in a situation, no child should ever have to experience. Those two days on the stand, it was almost as if Collier was channeling the confidence and courage his mother had instilled in him all those years prior. Almost as though... Noreen was sitting by his side, holding his hand, whispering for him to grab the brass ring. Ultimately, John Boyle was found guilty for aggravated murder and abuse of a corpse and was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 20 years. But this wasn't a moment of victory for Collier. He'd lost everything, his mother, his home, and now his father too. And in the months before and after the trial, it became increasingly obvious to Collier that his foster family was only interested in adopting his three-year-old sister, Elizabeth. The only parental figure Collier had left in his life now was the detective he'd worked with to solve his mother's murder, Dave Messmore. I mean, here's the thing, you know, I had really bonded with Dave and his wife because my foster care situation was not good. They wanted to adopt my sister. They would babysit Elizabeth a lot for my mom during this whole divorce thing. So any chance that they could do to separate us because they wanted to tell the court, like, look, they didn't bond, so we should take her, but not him. That was their plan all along. And I didn't want to be in their house. And I wanted to have a sense of normalcy. And after the trial, because I had bonded with Dave, I mean, here's the guy who was the hero. Here's the father that I was always longing for, right? All I wanted was to restart a normal life with a loving mother and father. All I wanted to do was feel like a kid. When the issue of Collier's adoption came before the local court, Dave Messmore and his wife threw their hat into the ring, offering to raise Collier as their own. It would have been the first truly positive thing to have happened to Collier since the entire saga began. But once again, Collier's hopes were shattered. I remember being in the courtroom and Judge Christ literally said, 
you don't think I'm actually going to let you go with the guy who put your dad in jail, right? And I, I lost my mind because it's the one thing I wanted. Because it was literally like I've been through so much hell in my life. My whole entire world, the entire state of Ohio has just watched this kid go through hell for the last six months and do the right thing and stand up for his mother, going against my father, putting my own life in jeopardy. So when the judge said it to me, I was just, I was like, but I've done everything right. I've done everything right. And I'm a good kid. Why can't I get what I want? Why don't I get to have a little, just the smallest, the smallest reprieve or just little bit of just joy in a little bit of light in the abyss? Can I get a little bit of that? And he was like, no. From what I understand, Dave had investigated him years prior on a corruption case. And he investigated him for corruption and he never forgot that. And he knew how much Dave and Sue wanted to take me in. Despite being devastated by the news, fortunately, Collier would eventually be adopted by another loving local family who raised him into adulthood. My adopted parents, George and Susan Ziegler, they are fantastic in their own way. It was a different scenario, different parenting style, all of that. But if anything makes it into this episode, it's this. I would not change my life for anything. All the pain, all the suffering, all the sorrow, everything. It has brought me to this moment, to the person that I have become. And I really, finally, really like that guy. And you know what? My mother would too. Collier went on to study music at Ohio University before moving out to Los Angeles to pursue a career in filmmaking and cinematography, always knowing that one day, he'd finally find a way to tell his story to the world. After working in LA for nearly a decade, that day finally came when he met someone that would change the course of his life. John Morrissey, producer of the movie American History X, released in 1998, a movie that had always resonated with Collier. We walked out of the cinema and I said, whoever made that film understands the consequences of violence. Collier was excited to meet the man who'd made the film that had made such an impact on him, and the two became friends. After a few years, Collier opened up to John to share about his own history with violence and showed him a scrapbook of all the newspaper articles related to his mother's murder and father's incarceration. Man, he goes, are you, are you serious? This is your life? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, I know somebody who would really love to do this. And he's like, I just did a feature film with her and she has won two Academy Awards for documentaries and her name is Barbara Koppel. And that's when it started. That was like 2009, 10. With promising connections, the ball was now rolling for Collier to tell his mother's story in a way he'd always imagined. Although it would take a few years with some minor bumps along the way, Collier would eventually turn his mother's story into a documentary film called A Murder in Mansfield, directed by Academy Award winner Barbara Koppel. I went back to Ohio because my father was up for parole. And mind you, I kept, a, I kept a relationship with my father throughout this entire time because I knew that I always wanted to do something with his story. I forgave my father very early on because, as I've said to people many times, forgiveness, it's not about them, it's about you. 
It's about you moving on and you embracing this and not letting it control you. But it began to, to come to fruition around uh, in, in 2015. It ended up turning into a full-on documentary and it ended up instead of me sort of being behind the camera shooting it, it ended up me taking the audience on that journey. Just as Collier had always intended, a murder in Mansfield steers away from the traditional true crime narrative and focuses on highlighting the consequences of violence in families, adjacent victims, communities, and the ripple effects far beyond the grave. But there was also an incredibly personal storyline that served as a driving force, as well as a dramatic climax. Although in his heart, Collier forgave his father long ago, he was still plagued by one simple question. Why? Why did his father murder his mother? What had driven him to kill the most important person in Collier's life? It was a question Collier believed he not only needed answered, but deserved. For the first 20 years of Jack Boyle's incarceration, he staunchly maintained his innocence and refused to admit any responsibility whatsoever. But in 2010, that changed. To a parole board, Jack was suddenly admitting he was, quote, responsible, stopping well short of a full confession. During filming, Collier entered his father's prison with a full camera crew and confronted him with the question that had been eating at him, why? And for the first time, Jack admitted to his face as to being the one who killed Noreen. But it was a tragic accident. Noreen had apparently attacked him, and he essentially killed her in self-defense. Needless to say, Collier never got the answer he was searching for, and Jack's story about her death being an accident, well, it simply didn't hold any water. The amount of premeditation made it impossible, especially considering the jackhammer rental, the questions to the real estate agent, and all the other evidence proving he'd been planning to make Noreen disappear well before her murder. And now, after 30 years behind bars, Jack's still lying, completely unwilling to bring peace to his son and tell the truth about what happened that night. Most importantly, why? But that didn't matter anymore, because after making the film, something strange happened to Collier. He didn't need to know why anymore. For him, the most important question became, what now? You know, I've done a TED Talk, you know, I've been on Dr. Phil, I've traveled to universities and spoken, you know, I was doing all that before the pandemic. And then during the pandemic, about a year ago, I started a podcast called Moving Past Murder to tell not only my story, but to talk about what the consequences of violence are in the world, in communities, in family units, ancillary victims that we don't know about, trauma recovery, and going through these extraordinary circumstances, really going through hell and coming out okay on the other side. And, you know, it's because the story resonates so much with people and the podcast resonates with people to hear my story and my journey and and it's really cool to be able to inspire after hearing collier's past 
it would be understandable if his future had turned out completely different. If he harbored resentment, if he struggled with depression, or even addiction. Quite frankly, if we ever heard from him again. Instead, Collier's life is living proof. Someone can take the absolute worst day of their life and channel it into something positive, into actions and a life that inspires others to flip the script and respond to adversity by doing what his mother always told him to do, grab the brass ring. What I'm waiting for and what I'm hoping is hearing from the person that says, I've laid it all out. I was done with her. Like, this woman has destroyed my life. And I saw your film, and I said, that's not the answer. This is the mother of my children, thinking about my children, thinking about my, my family, my friends, her, her family, our community, all of that. I saw how that impacted you, and I don't want to leave that legacy behind. I mean, that chokes me up thinking about something like that, being able to alter the course of someone's life in a way where they didn't do this exact same thing to someone, where they've learned because all I wanted to do speak to that kid just like me but also speak to that person that might be contemplating something and if it gives them an extra two seconds of pause where in that two seconds they go maybe this isn't the answer I don't need to pull the trigger I don't need to go shoot that liquor store clerk I don't need to go rob that bank I don't need to go to beat my partner into oblivion I don't need to do this. I don't need to take my own life. Like you can't put a dollar value on that. Like that's, that's called leaving a legacy. And that is the one thing at the end of the day, like I'll leave this earth having done that and done that for my mother where she doesn't, you know, her loss wasn't in vain. Then that would make her happy. <laughs> I'd like to thank Collier for joining us in this episode. If you want to hear more from him, check out his podcast. Testimony continued today in the most notorious criminal trial in Richland County history. Dr. John Boyle is accused of killing his wife, Noreen, and burying her body in the basement of his new home in Erie, Pennsylvania. The 12-year-old son finally took the stand. As I heard a scream, I heard a thud. It was about this loud. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty. When I was 12 years old, my testimony sent my father to prison for murdering my mother. In this podcast, I will cover the unanswered questions behind murder, its motives, and what it takes to move on. I will take you inside the mind of a sociopath where I will read my father's letters from prison for the first time. This podcast serves as a type of therapy and reconciliation for myself, and it is my hope that it helps anyone who has experienced deception, betrayal, and dark trauma. I'm Collier Landry, and this is Moving Past Murder. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, 
Start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com/madness.